Before we get to the podcast this week, don't forget our next Castro Flow Racing Night in America event is Wednesday, May 12th at Brownstown Speedway in Brownstown, Indiana. So far, our 10 race miniseries has really been a hit, and I feel pretty comfortable saying that. We've had huge online audiences, we've had great fields, and I'm just going to say it, they've been the most efficiently run shows in the United States. Uh, yeah, I know, we've only had two classes at them, but that's that's part of the design, right? Uh, and I, that's been a point we're very proud of, is how fast the shows have gone. We've had Ben Shelton and Dustin Jarrett at the track on the call, myself and Derek Kessinger back in the studio. They've been fun, they've been fast, and the racing overall has been pretty damn good too. And that picks back up Wednesday night, May 12th, at one of the more legendary tracks in the country, one of the, especially one of the more legendary late model tracks, Brownstown Speedway. Watch every night of Castrol's Flow Racing Night in America live on Flow Racing. All right, let's get to it. And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. This is your Rigsby Report podcast for Thursday, April 29th, our 2nd of April, and I'm pretty excited about today's interview from Scott Bloomquist to the Gateway Dirt Nationals to Mansfield to his own racing career and all the misconceptions out there about him, and I think there's a lot. We went in-depth with Cody Summer, and I'm not sure there's a guy who's been more talked about, especially in a short amount of time in late model racing than this guy. And sometimes when I just have a lot of questions for people, I think, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to call him up and I'm going to ask him those questions and do this interview. So I did that with Cody today. Some really good stuff here. It's about an hour. I think you're going to love it. It's a different perspective than my past Rigsby reports, and I think you'll pick up on that when you're listening. Some quick hitters first. Just rapid fire off the top of my head, top of my chest, some things I want to mention. Brandon Shepard right now currently has one victory, I still think he'll end up with at least 15 to 17 when the year is over. Call, call it 16. I say Shepard ends up with at least 16 wins. So basically May 1st on, I think Sheppy's going to win 15 more races. Uh, next, another thought I had. I'm with Jonathan Davenport in his tweet about Eldora. There are a lot of guys whining around too much about Eldora. But come on, man. The, the money that that place is putting on the line is really kind of mind-blowing. All within 48 hours of each other, first the dream and then the world, twice this year. There was a time when drivers would have begged for that. And I've seen drivers and even some fans complaining about it, about it's too much racing, it's too demanding, it's all this. But I mean, come on, man. You don't, you don't have to run all of them all, all year if you don't want to. Basically, what I'm getting at is, yeah, you're going to want to go run those shows at Eldora, but you don't have to run every race all year. You could put 70 shows together very selectively if you wanted to. And I think that's what JD is basically saying. Take a step back and realize, in essence, we're in a golden age of racing for money right now. So let's try to appreciate that a little bit. Now, of course, JD, and I'll admit this, he has as much crew help as anybody, and he's also as hot as anybody in the country right now, so he really wants to race. I understand he's biased a little bit. But overall, the double dreams and double world things, which is only going to happen once, is just going to be uh, memorable, unforgettable weekends twice. And I'm excited, really, on our end, too, for what we have planned for both of those broadcasts. Lastly, speaking of Jonathan Davenport, what if, what if he actually comes back and wins the Lucas Oil Championship. Is it possible even? 
He was a dead man walking when he left Speed Weeks. Right now, he's 145 points out. He's the hottest driver in the country. It would be, I think, one of the great all-time title turnarounds if he could pull it off. Now, there's a couple caveats with this. Of course, he has to want to pull it off. He has to go to Knoxville in September and actually compete at that race and not go south to Texas. There's also the matter of that Brownstown rainout that, you know, he went to to Bristol that night and he skipped that event. He'll have to be able to start that race if they go back in September. And I honestly, I'm not sure that he's going to be able to start that race, quite honestly. But, you know, it'd be no different than if a guy um, had the title clinched before the Dirt Track World Championship. He didn't have to show up at the Dirt Track World Championship if he didn't want to. He could miss a race and still win the championship. I'm just really interested to see how this plays out. I thought it was a foregone conclusion he could not win the title. Now I'm not so sure. I think he still could win the championship. You know, and listen, Lucas is the premier tour in America. Rick Schwally's bunch is. Um, and one, one other thought with that. Thank God Forrest Lucas decided that he liked racing a lot of years ago. I think sometimes we take that for granted a little bit. But, you know, what if Forrest Lucas liked... Um, I'm trying to think of something here. What is it, What is something else he could have... What if it, this is going to be funny because I don't think... Maybe Forrest Lucas likes the opera. I doubt he does, but maybe, maybe he does. I, maybe he does. Maybe, what if he loved the opera and he put all of his money into the opera? He liked racing. He's put a shit ton of money into racing, so I really, I really like that. But anyway, a roundabout long way of saying... If JD does pull this off and in essence has to miss a race at Brownstown because he can't start it, it would be one of the wilder stories in the history of dirt late model racing. Um, I'm going to be interested as they ramp back up here. uh, I'm going to be interested to see how that goes. All right, let's get to Cody summer. One cool thing about my work at flow sports is that I'm exposed to so many non racing people. And I don't mean that as a dig on racing people. I love them. They have become my family. But whether it's basketball or football or wrestling or grappling, I get to pick the brains of so many insanely talented people who have made their living outside the world where I have existed for 14 years, basically. And lately, I think more and more about that. And that sort of reminds me of my guest today. My pledge when I started the Rigsby Report well over a year ago now was that we'd have truthful, honest conversations with folks that I thought were interesting. People who, above all else, had something to say other than the, and I'm using air quotes here, you can't see it, the standard stuff. I wanted to dig a little deeper, go a little further, and have people leave these conversations when they listen to them thinking, yeah, shit, I learned a lot. And the reason I brought up that flow thing at the beginning is because Cody Summer sort of fits a fits that bill to me a little bit. Someone who's got a lot of experience outside of racing. He'd actually built a life outside of motorsports. And he's also just really interesting. And he he also really gives responses for the many years that I've known him that are non-standard. And he is without question, like I said, just an interesting person. And someone that that fits the bill for everything that Flow Sports is and that I was trying to do with this podcast. So today, he joins me on the Rigsby Report. Cody, I can't start without asking you. You you are now a father of two. Your wife just gave birth to your second baby a few weeks ago. Honest answer, we had to start here. Being a father of two is how much different or harder than being a father of one? Because I hear a lot of dads say, oh, it's the same. There's no difference. I would like a truthful answer to that. Oh, well, um, I would, if I had to sum it up in one word, I would say weird. It's just <laughs> weird. I, I, um, 
I never really knew that I'd have one child, let alone two. And <laughs> especially, you know, I had complications with my first one. And then, of course, we're getting ready to go to Bristol and do all this. And then all of a sudden, boom, uh, having another one and in a month and a half early and just of course, it can't be typical. It's got to be, you know, controversial and got to be something. But um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's just weird for me. I'm, I think it's going to take me a little while to get used to it, I I guess. You know, I imagine that's a normal thing for fathers. Mom and baby, everybody's doing okay, though. I know in the NICU for a while because it's premature, but everybody's doing okay, right? Yeah, everybody's good. It's just uh, it's one of those things. Premature, you you got time, and and you got to let time run its course, and and let the people. I you know I kind of joke with people that I, I've talked to in the last few weeks since this happened. I say I've got the best babysitter possible. You know, uh, <laughs> you know the hospital, UT Medical Center in Tennessee. They're great, and they're they're doing what they need to do, and they're the best babysitter of of young Skyler that we could have. So. Um, you know, hopefully we can take them home and bring them home very soon. That's our goal. So, Cody, when I do these interviews, I don't always start with the, you know, give me your background angle. Uh, but I, I kind of want to with you because, and I'm being very honest when I say this, I hear so many funny things about you that are either, and I know you very well, that are either just not true about your background or some shade of the truth, but many of the details are incorrect. Some of it's right. Some of it isn't. You know, I know you're an Illinois kid like me, but but take me through it a little bit. I want your, you know, born and raised, where you're from, all that stuff, because I even hear so many misconceptions about that. So I really want to start with that first. Take me through that aspect of your life. Well, as as you said, I'm from Illinois, um, and I grew up um, really in a small area called Sheffield that. Um, doesn't have more than probably a thousand people. We don't even have a stoplight. Um, and, uh, I, I, it's really an area. If you're in farming, it, it, you're probably like 90% of the population, but me and, you know, my family wasn't in farming. So, uh, but we were into racing and, and, um, so I, you know, I grew up kind of there having a dirt car in the garage, uh, with my dad and, and, a lot of people can relate to that and growing up that way. And Bureau Valley, I learned, is that right? The racetrack would have been Bureau Valley, yeah. Princeton, right? Yeah. 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 Bureau Valley. Uh, you know, I went to Bureau Valley High School, um, which is in, in Manlius. And it's, um, again, just about an hour north of Peoria. And so, you know, I cut my teeth on my tracks like LaSalle, but my home track was Bureau County Speedway, which man, I wish today it still existed because it was badass. I mean, this D shaped fast, uh, it taught you a lot of different things about a race car and how to, how to be. And uh, it just was, it was a great place to grow up. And that's, so that's where I grew up. And, um, you know, but I did finally get to a point in my life where again, I wasn't a farmer <laughs> and there wasn't exactly, you know, sky rise buildings full of corporate offices. So I really had a career choice to make when I got, you know, to, to end of high school and starting college. And I did start college, but I didn't finish. And um, it's because I had an opportunity to, to go work in racing for a living. And, yeah, so I, I kind of felt like as a 19-year-old and getting ready to make my life path, um, I absolutely couldn't miss out on the opportunity to go work in NASCAR and, um, I had been helping at LaSalle Speedway, 
um, with the Izzo family. And it just, I, I ended up, I just packed my bags and I took that leap that a lot of people talk about taking and never do. And I did it, you know, I packed my bags, I threw them in the back of a car, didn't really necessarily know exactly what was going to happen. I didn't necessarily know exactly where I was going to be living or staying or what direction I was going to be taking. But I took a leap because I had been given an opportunity um, to literally just help practically wipe down a NASCAR truck at Chicagoland. And the car owner uh, made a comment to me that if uh, if I did live in Charlotte, he would absolutely give me a job. And so I told him, well, then he should look forward to seeing me. And he kind of chuckled and his name is Bobby Dodder. And I owe a lot to Bobby because he gave me my big chance in racing. And, um, I, I, I ended up packing my bags. He, he obviously didn't know that I was actually going to drive down there, but I showed up on Monday morning, uh, in the shop and his jaw hit the floor and, then I was a NASCAR guy. So I, I worked in NASCAR and, and Bobby, of course, gave me a job like he promised and uh, worked in NASCAR for about four or five years. Um, and I was kind of there, uh, several different things, uh, doing anything from jumping the wall to marketing to PR to you name it. But the pinnacle, I guess the highlight of my NASCAR career was working at um Earnhardt Ganassi racing in the cup shop. And, and at that level, it was like a dream come true, especially for an Illinois boy who took a leap and threw his bags in the back of his car, you know? So, um, it, uh, it was pretty great. And, uh, and then the, the market crashed and, um, there was several teams that, that laid off hundreds of employees and Ganassi was one of them that we had 400 employees at the time. And, I think they cut about 180 or 200 employees uh, that year. And it was just, it was a very dark time in sport. So, so this I is like o- with o- another 07, 08 market crash time is what you're talking about. Right in that window. Right. Yeah. It okay. would have been probably, yeah, probably 08. Okay. Um, and maybe even later, it might've been like 09 or 10, but um, I don't know off the top of my head, but I was kind of faced with another life choice is do I keep, uh, trying to be this Chad Knauss guy, because that's what I really felt like I was doing. I felt like I was on my path to be uh, somebody big in NASCAR. You know, I, I absolutely had my eye on being a crew chief and being responsible for a team's success and being a leader in team success. And I was on my path, but uh, it just got cut short, unfortunately. And, and, but it, it put me in this position where I had to kind of choose, do I want to continue to do this or do I want to, you know, venture outside of it? And so, uh, needless to say, I ventured outside of it. I got involved in some other things. Um, but primarily what really call it shaped, uh, probably was the next major thing in, in my life's history that shaped my future was getting involved in the beverage business. And we're going to talk about and, that. I don't want to cut you off We're because we're going to talk about that. But I, I just want to make sure I have this right. So you, you're this young kid in Illinois. You obviously were involved with the Izzo family at LaSalle a little bit. So you're still late teens, early 20s. You're kind of done with high school. I just want to make sure I have this right. You wipe, you, you go to Chicagoland. And you're literally wiping the windows on a NASCAR truck. That leads to this opportunity in Charlotte. You moved to Charlotte, 
and, and, and then it, obviously the market ends up crashing in 07, 08. But Cody, how long were you in Charlotte? Because even I didn't know some of this stuff. How long were you down there in Charlotte working in and around those NASCAR teams? Well, again, you know, I lived in Charlotte for really essentially from 19 until I moved to Tennessee with, with you know, SBR and, and Scott Blinquist. So, I, I mean, but, Charlotte is like in a lot of ways home for me now. But, but that's you know, specific when I moved pre, there, pre-beverage company, you know, you in NASCAR pre-beverage company. How long were you there? How long did that last? I would say it was about four or five years. Okay. Like I said, uh, um, you know, I had a very strong four-year career in NASCAR and I was doing again when you start in the truck series I started as a tire specialist and it's a pretty grueling job uh in that sport but it's obviously a very specialized job um and I learned a lot about tires (laughs) things that I didn't ever really expect to learn but um then it just migrated into the next thing and the next thing next thing you know I'm I'm getting hired at Earnhardt Ganassi and then next thing you know I'm in the R&D department, I'm working with engineers, and the next thing you know, I'm on a setup plate, and I'm setting up cup cars, and I got 45-year-old men that are pissed off at me because I'm 21 and taking a job that they wish they had or wanted, and, and it just was a really weird time for me because I felt like there was no slowing me down, and again, that Chad Knauss type of mentality I really felt like I was on my trajectory to being one of those types of guys. And then it just come crashing down. So in a lot of ways, it was such a uh, bad spot or moment uh, when it all came crashing down. But in in a lot of other ways, um, you know, I, I, I had success in other areas and in other things that I never would have thought. I mean, I was not a corporate guy. I grew up again in a small town, didn't even finish college. When I, when I left college, I didn't even know how to run Excel programs. <laughs> now I could run circles around people I've in seen, Excel. But, I have seen your Excel spreadsheets. Yes, I know. I know what they look like. But, but my, you know, again, it just, my life, I'm actually happy in a way that, that NASCAR big picture career didn't work out because I think I'm much more of a well-rounded person today. You know, I would have been hardcore, what I consider hardcore. I tell people all the time, I am gray collar. There's blue collar, white collar, and I am gray because I can do both. And I don't know a lot of people that can do both. And this is the moment in my life where it really made me go to the white collar side. So let's put a pin in that for a second, because I want to circle back to that. It's one of the biggest things I wanted to ask you about, that moment in your career when you left NASCAR. But put a pin in that for one second. You mentioned Bureau Valley, and you know you leave for Charlotte when you're 19 or whatever, but people kind of forget you were an actual racer. You were a late model racer. You were a street stock racer. Take me through that career a little bit, how it started, how, you know, how, how high up the rung. I mean, I have a WDRL memory with you and Burkoff, where I remember back in the day there was a UDTRA race at LaSalle. I remember you ran. Give us just a quick overshot of your actual racing career. Are you behind the wheel? Well, here's just a fun little, you're probably never going to hear it anywhere else, <laughs> uh, tidbit that I'll give you is Brian Burkoffer broke my wrist. <laughs> he broke my damn wrist at Bureau County Speedway. I guess you're saying it was WDRL race. I don't remember I thought what it was kind a, of I, I think, think it was WDRL, I think, but I don't remember. So, 
So, yes, I used to race. I, you know, again, I grew up through the ranks, so I did the street stock thing and the bomber thing. And then, you know, I was like the local hero. You know, everybody thought I was like the greatest thing, you know, and, and I probably thought it at the time, too, much <laughs> like a lot of many, you know, everybody thinks they're the next Jeff Gordon. But it just the higher you go up that ladder, the the more reality you get struck with. But, um, yes, I was a driver and, and yes, uh WDRL came to our hometown and I was running a super late model and Brian Burkoff was spun out and <laughs> took me out and my wrist was broken two places and he went on to of course kick everybody's ass and win the race and I was in the ER but uh, you know uh, nobody remembers that you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah and and always been a racer and, and just uh, I think that's one thing that I don't uh, get enough respect on is that I grew up racing and 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 I know the ins and outs of it. Period. I just do. So I want to. I wanted you to touch on that because I've had a hundred people tell me, you know, the guy does. The guy's never raced. He's never done. He's you know, he's just a corporate guy. I'm like, no, you actually know he's from a small town in Illinois that they loved late model racing, and he was a late model racer, which is why I wanted you to mention that. And I, I wanted to go back to that point in your career. NASCAR, it's 0708 NASCAR. How and how old are you at this time, real quick? You're 20 what in 0708? How old would you have been? Well, I'm 35 now, so in 2027 I would have been uh, I guess I would have just turned 21. Okay. So, um so uh, yeah. You're 21 years old at this point. And to me, this is where the interesting sort of the Cody Summer story starts to take a little bit of different turn. Uh, that's kind of when I first started to know you was at this point. You know, I, I really kind of started to know you. You owned and operated Dixie Dirt TV, this website down there in the in the southeast uh, that I knew you had acquired. But, you know, you had stopped racing yourself. Your NASCAR career had kind of come to an end. You're in your early 20s. Uh, take me through that moment in your life, like what, what you decide to do at that point. You know, you mentioned the beverage company. Just kind of drop us back into 07, 08 and how this, your life really changed at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I think it's, um, you know, like like a grinder type of mentality, a, a scratcher and a clawer. I was, I was searching for something to stick and I was searching for something other than that, that again, that Chad Canals thing, I was, I was, you know, in that mentality of making a full career out of NASCAR, I was searching for something to just shape the rest of my life. And, um, of course I wanted it to be in racing and in a lot of ways, my entire life has been about racing, but, uh, I'm just, I'm such a hardcore entrepreneur that I think about things differently than a lot of people do. So of course I'm creating this and, and creating that. And I'm again, I, I ran a t-shirt printing company, um, out of a garage for a while during <laughs> that time in my life. And, and one of the first to have a directed garment printer. Now it's like, now it's a thing, you know, everybody has them or anybody in that space has them. And it's like, but I was, I, I was just a, I was a grinder, you know, I was just trying to find the thing that stuck. And then lo and behold, here comes a, a energy drink company that sees my talent, call it, and, and wants me to work on their team. So, uh, it was an opportunity where I said, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to go work in corporate America and sell energy drinks to companies like Kroger and Walgreens and, and you name it. And that just really changed everything for me because again, uh, a year or two prior, I couldn't even open Excel 
uh, let alone operate it. And then a year or two later, I'm building spreadsheets that people are basing their business decisions off of. It was just a crazy, crazy evolving time in my life, my early 20s. That beverage company that you talked about, you know, you dabbled into some sponsorships and late models. I think it was Stout 21. Was that the parent company? Was Stout 21 or did it have a different, the parent company had a different name? So when I was at Wave Energy Drink, um, I had met a lot of just great people. Um, and I had learned that, that there was a struggle going on uh, at a higher level, higher than me. I was the vice president of national sales at the time. Uh, again, just 22, 23 years old and selling to, to a lot of different people, but in the energy drink space. And, and I really made a decision that I was tired of having my future shaped by someone else. Yeah. And uh, that was when I did, I did come up with the idea of, of launching Stout Beverages. So you started um, a different energy company. company and then launched another energy drink company, basically, right? Well, I, I looked at it like this. Um, I was in the energy drink space, and, and of course, I, I'm just looking for opportunity. And I saw an opportunity in the alcohol industry and said, man, this is something that I feel like if somebody jumped into – uh, it would go over big. So I had this idea where you could basically buy a shot in a convenience store and uh, you can buy uh, beer shine. Uh, it, it essentially it looks like liquor, uh, sure. but it's not liquor. So when you go into a state, and there's a lot of states, and I can tell you a lot of we spend hours talking about alcohol regulation. I know all about it, and, but but I know that's not what everybody wants to no, hear. No, no, it is not. Is, You're right. I saw I saw opportunity, and I jumped, and I had this idea, and and you know again, it was like lightning strike in my life. I had these people that um, had money that wanted to invest, and boom, it just from that moment forward when I started Stout my entire life changed. Um, I was actually established. I actually, um, you know, I actually could pay my bills. I could actually get a nice car. I could actually get a nice house. And I, and I was finally what, uh, what I would consider successful. And, um, it was a, a very magical time in my life, and it was it was amazing how quick it happened. But you know, sometimes I guess that's how it works. This is, next question is kind of twofold. Obviously, you didn't the, the thing was stout. You didn't stay there long term. Can what happened there? And I, I know maybe some of it you can talk about, some of you can't. And I know also, and I, I'm just going to ask it. I asked Kenny Wallace flat out a money question. And I'm just going to kind of flat out probably cross a line and ask you a money question as well. When you got out, I know there was some financial stuff that came along with it, whether it was a buyout or whatever you want to call it. How much money are we talking here? Are we talking life-altering money? Are we talking – what are we talking about? That's a two-part question I'm going to let you kind of take me through. Well, you know, I don't know that there's a certain dollar amount I would put on it all but as, as to be considered life-altering, but – as I've already indicated, Stout in, in its entirety was life-altering to me. So, I mean, when you get a company to invest uh, millions of dollars into an idea that you have and you're the brainchild and you're building it and it's building very quick. I mean, we're talking two years. Uh, we're selling uh, 
20, $30 million in alcohol a year. Okay. Wow. And, and it, and, and we go from no distribution, no states to 35 plus states, over 180 distributors. I'm in over 1600 Walmarts. We're in circle K's where, I mean, you name it, we were making it happen and we we're making it happen quick. Um, I felt like, um, it, was, it again, it was such a great time of my life, but it was also stressful. I was, I was on an airplane probably three times a week and the, those same people that I am still very appreciative to, of today that invested in me, uh, their mentality, or at least one of their mentalities kind of changed and got more aggressive toward me as a partner. So there was, there was four of us as partners, um, in stout. And obviously they were the ones that, that, are responsible for allowing it to get off the ground because without the money, you just can't do it. It's just how it works. And, um, uh, really me and this individual just started to butt heads and it was like nothing. I, you know, I could go out and sell literally a $250,000 alcohol order yesterday and be in a meeting the next day and being being told how what I'm doing is not good enough for the company. And as a guy who created the company and as a guy who founded it, it was not a fun experience. It was very um, uh, disheartening, belittling, and I just had enough. And it, it just inspired me to want to focus on my passion. And that was racing. So it wasn't very long later that, that, you know, I, I, decided I was going to promote a race inside of a building. And, <laughs> and we, we, you know, we parted, uh, we parted ways and I got my check and they took the rest. And, and that's really, um, you know, uh, that's really where it was. You, you have, so at this point again, and I, I'm finding it's a little bit of a theme with you, which I think is, is been successful for you over the years. You, you have these sort of crossroads moments in your life, right? NASCAR ends, you got a, a fork in the road. You go down this energy drink, um, you know, energy drink, alcohol, all that stuff. You go, you go down that fork in the road. Um, that ends. You've got another fork in the road. Drop me into your mindset at that point. You leave this company. Then I'm, assu- I'm assuming at one point you thought, hey, the rest of my life is going to be at this company, right? Like this thing is growing so fast and I'm going to be here forever. And then that ends. Um, and we all know kind of now Cody P- Summer, the promoter and all of that, you know, Scott Bloomquist, and we'll talk about all that happens. But drop me, drop, drop us as the audience into your mindset at that point. What the hell am I going to do now that this energy drink stuff is done and the alcohol drink stuff is done? What were you thinking at that moment? Well, I mean, that would kind of be like me saying, did you ever think that you were going to sell dirt on dirt to flow? <laughs> hell no. You never thought hell that, right? No. right? Hell no. So, but, it, right. but it doesn't mean that you're still not happy today. And, sure. you, and it doesn't mean that, you know what I mean? So. To me, it was really one of those things where I didn't think that I was ever not going to be doing anything other than that. But when I got to that point, um, I was very much okay with the position I was in because I had a vision that I was going to go full force into, uh, you know, now that I had established myself uh, financially sound in a good position, um, had some capital, had some things I could do. I, I felt like now is the time that I could really aggressively pursue my passion in dirt track racing. And, <laughs> and I did, you know, the dome started and I did, well, I did Indy and that was kind of a 
little bit of a up and down thing, but you know, then the dome and, and then of course Mansfield and, and, you know, everything else that's happened over the last five, six years. So, you know, that's a lot of background. And again, I don't always do that, but I guarantee there's people that have listened to that last 20 minutes and go, holy shit, I didn't know anything about uh, that about him. Right. And I wanted people to have that context and, and you to fill in the blanks. And, and so, speaking of people having misconceptions about people and not understanding people, uh, Scott Bloomquist, two years ago, it's, yeah, it's about two years now, in a move I think a lot of people wondered, you know, wondered about, you became an owner of Scott Bloomquist Racing. In essence, you and Scott owned the brand, uh, Scott Bloomquist Racing together, SBR. You want to talk about questions. I I have a lot of questions about this, uh, so kind of <laughs> prepare yourself. I hope you don't have to babysit today. Buckle up. First, as, as we sit here two years into this Bloomquist partnership, and I would like an honest answer here, is this the venture that you thought it would be? Um, well, a simple answer is no, um, but I would say it's an extremely complicated one to answer. Um, uh, I often think back to like the beginning and uh, it does frustrate me when people seem to forget or they simply don't know how or why this all came to be in the first place uh, or what the goal was of why we were doing this. And we did make it clear when we, you know, when we started this and uh, it's kind of unfortunate that I feel like I have to even say it, but it's like, I was uh, very much wanted and uh, I would even say that I personally believe I was actually needed. But uh, when I walked into that situation, um, it was my goal was to make it uh, sustainable and be a future for Scott because that's what uh, was lacking. So when you, so when you ask your question, has it become what I thought it would be? I would, I would say no, because we're still not there yet. There's been things that, um, you know, if there was a bunch of things that needed worked on, I've worked, I've went to work on them, but, uh, we, we still have, you know, issues in some other areas, you know, but when I walked in, you know, and people just, I really hope they understand, you know, financially things were not in a great spot. There was, there was a lot of bills and, and the control of the situation was, uh, a little lost and it was just a dark time for the team. And it was actually a dark time for Scott personally. So, uh, again, when I step in and want to create a sustainable future, I almost felt like, um, you know, I had the, uh, fortunate and honor of, of being the person that could create that for someone like Scott, not only at the tail end of his racing career, but when he hangs up his helmet and into the future, I felt like, you know, it was an honor to be the the right guy. And I still feel that way. I'm just saying, uh, kind of rewinding myself to that moment. And, you know, it does, uh, does make you really feel that way when, when Scott himself says things like he does all the time, he says, you know, I wish I had you 10 years ago. And yeah. so, like, of course I wish too, you know, I wish too. But, um, so every day it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it always feels like it's a deep situation, you know, but we're always working on things and and we're excited about uh, the rest of this year. What would you say the biggest, I'm trying to think of the right words here, uh, the biggest challenges or, or, or blow, body blows that you've taken since you've taken over at S, but what, what are those? What are the biggest problems and challenges and, and blows that you've had to deal with? 
Well, um, everybody, uh, you know, I have my little circle, right? So rewind two, two and a half years ago when all this started, uh, I, of course, leaned on my little circle and, and asked, you know, what do you think about this? And uh, just about everyone in that circle was like, man, this Scott, Scott's a challenging person, man. You really think that you're going to get, you know, him to, to correct certain things or whatever. And it's like, I, you know, I, I, I really did feel that and still do, but um, I didn't think that some of the things that we faced were going to happen. And I don't know that anybody could have predicted them. I mean, I feel like for two years, it's been a, uh, you know, you walk into a situation that has four or five issues. And I think for two years, it feels like every time I am responsible for maybe fixing one of the issues, one or two more is created. It just, it's just really totally felt like that, you know, Obviously, you can go back to the beginning of time and go, okay, well, motorcycle accident was not supposed to happen. You got you got Cody Mallory termination, and there's a lot to do with that. There's chassis drama. Randy Sweet dies. Um, you know, Chris Madden, you know, he comes in, helps build us up, and then, boom, he's gone. And then, you know, now we've got Ricky Weiss gone. So it's like uh, I could – I could say a lot about each one of those blows, um, but they've all been things that uh, didn't expect. And I mean, obviously I personally, some of those things affect me more than others, um, but uh, they've all been things that, you know, for two years have, have made it difficult. But one thing I can say is, is, me and Scott have maintained our commitment to each other and we've been good and we've been great. And, um, to me, that's, that's something to be, you know, said. So Cody, you named five things there, you know, Randy and the Cody Mallory thing, but two that kind of stick out to me, there are Madden, Chris Madden, and Ricky Weiss. I don't, I don't think it's any secret. There's not a ton of love lost in the pit area between your team and those two teams as it sits here. Uh, what happened there? If you could kind of go into that a little bit more with, with first Chris and now Ricky kind of out on his own doing his own thing. Uh, but what happened in those two cases? Well, it's um, it's tough because I I think it's fair to say there's always uh, two sides to every story. And I can respect that. But I know that personally, me, Cody Summer, um, I felt like we as an organization, we took – Chris Madden come to Mooresburg, Tennessee and sat down, did not have a job. And uh, Scott came to me after that and said, let's, you know, let's have Chris drive. And um, I just went with it. Um, didn't know a whole lot about Chris Madden at the time. And, but, but what's personal to me is I, I developed over the course of a year, year and a half, however long it was, I really felt like I developed a close relationship with the guy. And um, that's why I'm hurt. Personally, I think he quit. Um, and uh, I'm not a quitter. And so it, it really upset me when he decided he was going to go and do his own thing. And again, that's his right. And I respect that. But um, I feel like I was willing to do anything and everything for that guy. And, and he quit on me. And so it, it, it hurt personally. And, you know, the Ricky thing, 
that's probably more of a hurt on Scott, and he could he could probably speak to that more than I can. Um, now, do, did did I have a good relationship with Ricky? Yeah, absolutely. Um, heck, we worked out of the same shop all the time, and and expressed the same mentality and ideas all the time. But you know, I think it's more of a you know Scott. Scott's taught a lot of people his life's work, um, but Ricky was like someone that he really took under his wing, and and I feel like people don't understand that that. Uh, and this is, I guess, from from my perspective only. I'll say um, I feel like this is an example of somebody who is um, taking what they've learned from somebody in 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 a roundabout way, almost, um, uh, going on their own and, and, uh, I guess one could say almost claiming it as their own. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate because it was, um, a, a good relationship. I thought that there was going to be, uh, a future there. And, and he decided for his own best, I, I guess his own best interest that he wanted to go and, and start his own thing. So, uh, obviously that's his right, but there is some hurt there. I know there is, and there is with me, but I know there is with Scott. And again, I can't speak for him, but, um, you know, uh, it's just unfortunate how, um, the departure was, you know, I, Larry Moore, when I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, he talked about, he said, virtually every racer will always outspend themselves. And he said, what I mean by that is every racer will always spend money on, themselves and speed and they they just never see an end right they can never see an end to it because they'll they've always especially guys like larry moore and scott right they've their careers have been defined by excellence you talked about the financial situation being tough you know i'm again i hope i'm not crossing a line here but just how tough was it i mean was it just a matter of just like every great racer scott had spent too much money on shit and it just that's that's the situation you walked into well, and you know, it's that, um, but it's also just, uh, you know, when you, when you have a motor issue because of an individual's lack of doing X or whatever, I'm, you know, I can use a ton of examples, but, uh, there's a lot of things you just don't expect that happen, you know I mean? And you can't even budget for, and they just seem to be happening, um, a lot to us, uh, especially these last year you know but financially it's very expensive to do what we do and if you look at again uh, my goal was to create a sustainable business and that means one that can be profitable uh, take care of itself and have a future and uh, most people in motorsports as far as a race team is concerned would tell you that is a very daunting task especially at a dirt track level. If you look at, there's probably only one or two teams that I think it's even possible with today in our sport. And that's Mark Richards and us, but everybody else, it's just guys that got money and they don't mind spending it. That ain't sustainability. And that ain't a future. They, they, they're not making money. They're spending it. And I came in with a very specific goal of, we are not going to, lose money here because it's just not the moment Scott hangs up the helmet. If that's the case, it's all over. And 
I didn't want that and I don't want that. And I don't think any of our industry or fans want that. So again, that's been my vision from day one is a sustainable future. And it's been a challenge, but you know, we actually are in a position where we're starting to see it take shape. And yeah, does it mean we're not running 120 races a year and the fans maybe don't love that? You know what? I'm sorry. We have a goal and we have a vision and that's what we're accomplishing. And, um, as far as the running better, I think people are going to see that very, very soon. I've had enough conversations with you to know one of the great things about shit. I've had enough conversations with Scott to know one of the great things about him is it, you know, he doesn't really answer to anybody and he never really has. And likely he never will. Right. And, and I do not mean that negatively. One of the great things that makes his racing mind so good is that it's on a level and a track that nobody else can really match. So Scott, in a way, he can't really answer to anybody else because he's had to function that way for so long to be so great. But have, have you found that out, that there are things that maybe you thought you could rein him in on that quite simply you cannot? Things you'd hoped, I think maybe I can make him change in this way or rein him in on this, I want him to do less of this professionally or personally, any of that. Have you thought some of that that you could do and just quite simply it's too late, you, you can't do well, um, I would say definitely there's, it's been both though. I think, you know, credit to Scott, there's been, there's been certain things that he has adjusted since my involvement. And then there's been certain things he has not probably as much as I thought he could have or should have, uh, for, for not only his own benefit, but you know, ours is a business, but, uh, I think that's an evolving thing and we're constantly working on it and, and, I know that Scott cares a lot and that's something that, you know, I really appreciate. And I think that we're always going to together be working on things. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's probably, I certainly could probably select a few things that it's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna give up on trying on that one and I'll focus on this one. Uh, and that's fair. Um, again, again, it's, uh, it's been a challenge for sure. The biggest challenge of my life. What is something that you could tell me about him that would absolutely blow people away? Like they'd go, there's no way. You're, Cody, you're lying. That's not true. Is there anything like that about him that just, just is, is people don't know it or are wrong about it about him? Um, well, I feel like he's a mysterious guy anyway, so I feel like there's a lot of people don't know about him. But I know, uh, you know, when I got into this, I use the term a lot that he is the Dale Earnhardt of our sport. And uh, I don't know that I, you know, I use that term, but I don't know that I actually felt it. It was just something I would use to like almost explain him and his history and his legacy to like sponsors. And um, I mean, I, I would say that this is probably a, personal thing but i'm truly truly amazed at how considerate he is to his fans and to children especially i've never seen him once turn down a picture an autograph um you know he interacts with his fans um uh, you know here's an example we 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 when we were at Cedar Lake last year, all of a sudden we're, we're going down the Apple Creek river with fans and tubing with them. And these are people that he met at the racetrack, you know, we're at Florence and he's building 
mud snowman with the carpenter kids, <laughs> Tyler Carpenter's kids, you know, and recently, uh, not not totally the most glorious moment, but it still shows you his fans and how he interacts with them. Is this whole stripper thing at Bristol and just <laughs> they he he definitely has the largest and most hardcore fan base in the sport and probably many other sports. And I I really I don't think that I truly understood it until being here and involved with him, but. You know, these people adore him and love him, and he loves them back. And it is remarkable to me, and it blows me away. And it's something that I truly don't think that our sport understands or appreciates enough because I don't think that we're ever going to see it ever again. No, that, no doubt. I mean, that's, there will never be another him. You and I have talked about that a thousand times. I say it all to he is the most interesting human being I have ever interviewed and I have interviewed NFL quarterbacks and major league shortstops and NBA players, and it's just – it's not even close. You know, part of that is, though, the, the sustained success he's had over the years, and you touched on it a little bit, and I want you to be as honest as you can be here. Do you – can you – you know, full transparency, maybe not to the level where he's winning 22 races a year, but do you, can you get him back? Can he get back to that sustained level of success that we are accustomed to from Scott Bloomquist. Can you do it? Um, it's a very difficult sport today. It is. It has gotten tougher the last five years, year after year, than the 10 years previous. And I know that not only because of just being in it, but also because of the people that we've been associated with. It has not been easy. Um, and... I do think, you know, Scott is not done. He's not. I think that um, we are going to see that in 2021. I think that um, he will absolutely, in, in my opinion, will win a big race this year at Eldora. And uh, that, I, I think that it's going to be difficult to pull on a string of wins, but I think that being in that top five, top six hunt is something that we are so close to that people don't even realize. Um, there's just been a lot of things that have happened that neither Scott nor myself could control that have happened. And it's unfortunate because uh, we, we've had such momentum at times, and then it's like your legs get taken out under you. And people just don't understand the entire situation. So, of course, you sit here feeling like you have to explain yourself all the time. You know, the greatest to ever do it. And why are you not winning all these races? And it's like, it does. It gets very uh, discouraging. But I can tell you right now, we are more focused and have more energy on these big events coming up uh, than I know that we've had in two years. So, um, I, I would... I. I'm telling you, I feel it. I, I feel like we've got at least one of these big Eldoras. We're going to have it. And you got four chances this year at Eldora, too. So, Scott, I know I'm sure is licking, <laughs> licking his chops about that. Normally, I ask for a wild road story. And, I, Jesus, the amount of wild road stories Bloomquist and you probably have. But, you know, people forget you actually moved to – you know, you live right by Scott. You moved to Tennessee. You're in the shop every day. And I know there's some crazy shit that happens at Scott's shop as well. So – I'll let you answer. This is my last Bloomquist question. 
your wildest road story and or wildest shop story for Scott Bloomquist. PG, not PG, I don't care. You decide. Oh, well, I don't really, honestly, I don't really have a lot of wild Scott stories because, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think everybody knows this, but I'm like the, you know, at SBR, I'm like the dad. The principal. You know, I'm like the You're parent. the principal, yeah. I'm the principal, <laughs> right. Right, so so a lot of times um, the wild stuff happens without me, right? <laughs> so, um, But what I always laugh about and I do joke about all the time is, well, the, the parent always knows what's going on, guys. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I know and I'll hear about it or whatever. So yeah, I've certainly heard a lot of wild stories and – and both past and even over the last couple of years, you know, um, but been, been a part of a lot of them. I couldn't, you know, mine and Scott's relationships a little bit different. I don't have a lot. Now, do we hang out and have a couple of drinks? Sure we do. But, um, wild, I don't know that I'd say, you know, I, I, but I know that he, when he went and run that Vegas modified deal, he had a pretty wild Vegas trip. I mean, and you know, what the saying is you can't, you know, what stay what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So of course I can't really tell you what I've heard, but I mean you I could will say that he you, missed you his flight. You know I will say that he missed his flight I think two times <laughs> and he was there four or five days later than he was supposed to be. So you know in Scott Bloomquist's world, missing your flight and being four or five days late, I'm sure that there is a lot that went down and happened during those four or five days. I just want to be clear here. You are le- that is an absolute cliffhanger that you are leaving the audience with. You're comfortable leaving us well, with that level of cliffhanger. I just want to be clear about this. It, it's it's one of those things. It's not my story to tell. <laughs> you son and, of a- <laughs> and if and if he never if he never wants to say his side of what happened in Vegas then guess what? He, I guess he doesn't have to. It's, it's his story to tell. Next time I see him, that will be my first question. Okay, uh, uh, off Bloomquist, Mansfield. You hosted the, you know, people forget sometimes, you hosted the second highest paying dirt late model race in history uh, at Mansfield. It was, wait, wait, say it one more time for the people in the back, please. <laughs> I knew, and I know you got a little bit of chip on your shoulder about this, and you should. You hosted the second highest paying dirt late model race ever at Mansfield. Do I need to do it one more time? You want me to do it one more time? <laughs> no, that's good enough. That's good enough. Second I highest paying it. dirt I, late I, model race ever. Uh, but, you know, Mansfield, in essence, lasted two years as a racetrack. Despite, I know you guys just put so much time and effort and money into the place. What happened? Why is Mansfield not still here today? What went wrong at Mansfield? Um, well, I can tell you that it was not from a lack of effort. It was not from a lack of finances. It was not from a lack of just um, doing a lot of uh, very – amazing things. I mean, we, we had a lot of successful events, but we had a lot of events that were not successful. I mean, ultimately if I had to pin it on one thing and only people that live in our around Mansfield would know this, but cause every track's going to say, well, they got a weather problem or I'm telling you right now, Mansfield, Ohio, the weather map, I don't know what it is about that area, but you can go back even in the NASCAR truck days 
rain out, rain delay, rain out, rain delay. I mean, it was amazing uh, at the history of rain in weather-related issues. I, I'm, here was Mansfield in a nutshell. For three years, if we had an event that had no weather in the area, no chance of weather, I could just about guarantee you we made money for that event. Wow. If there was weather in the area, we, I could pretty much guarantee you we lost money for that event. And when, when 70% of your events have weather either in the area or are completely rained out altogether, it is very hard to do what you're trying to do, especially at the level that we were trying to do it. I mean, we're not talking about a, a weekly racetrack here. I mean, you got to flip the lights on at Mansfield was $1,200 just yeah. to flip it on. And, and we're running events that have $100,000 purses or more. I mean, it was very difficult, but uh, we tried a lot of things and it does it does. This is another thing I do. I do. I absolutely have a chip on my shoulder because this is one of the things about our industry that pisses me off. Sometimes a lot of people forget, uh, the place was nothing. It was dormant. There was, it was never going to be anything ever again, most likely. And, uh, I, I, I'm not the guy that needs to be thanked or applauded every time I turn around. I'm not looking for that, but I certainly don't think it's fair to MF me uh, by being the guy that left it behind or high and dry uh, because the bottom line is it was dormant and, and it wasn't making money and it was burning money very, very fast. And I'm sorry to those people that believe I bailed on Mansfield, but guess what? I was tired of, pouring money into a bonfire. And that is the simplest way I can say it. Again, you can give me a specific number. You don't have to. But it, I'm assume, assuming at the end of the day, the balance sheet was negative on Mansfield. Um, how, how, painfully, Absolutely. how painfully negative was it? Just like, you're a smart business guy. At some point, you had to cut your losses. I mean, how bad was it? Uh, I it was, it was, it wasn't more than a million dollars, but you know, it was, it was approaching the million dollar mark and it was enough. And, and when you're talking about purchasing a property for 2.5 million and you're lost that much in a few years or, or um, you know, less than a million, but you start doing the math and it's like, this is just not something that is going to work. It's just not. And, um, you know, I had a lot of big visions and big hopes for the place I think everybody knows that I am proud to say that um, I put on one of the largest paying races in the sports history, but you know, it's kind of shitty at the same time is again, I don't, I don't get respect for it. I don't get credit for it. And again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily asking for it. I just think people need to um, understand that, when someone like myself comes in and does what they're doing, they don't have to do it. Um, they don't have to. And uh, I think showing a little more support would make a guy like me or even the guy after me want to do it that much more. So everybody just needs to keep in mind, we live in such an environment and a world that uh, Ben Shelton, actually, I think he had a story about this once, but it's like, it's like our industry sometimes, 
wants people to fail. And it's such a sad situation because we got to fix that people. We got to, we got to want people to succeed and we got to want people to survive because otherwise you end up in a situation like Mansfield. Let's, you know, let's pivot away from Mansfield. I, I kind of want to wrap things up, talk about gateway, right? I, I want to end this on a high note, something that I know you and I have a very shared love of and, you know, circling back to earlier in the conversation about how you, you made the decision, Gateway is kind of what spurred you back into racing post-energy company, uh, post-energy drink and all that. Uh, first of all, Gateway, it is happening this year, right? I've been getting that question a lot. We are 100% having the Gateway Dirt Nationals in December, yes? Well, I hope a lot of people listen to this because, frankly, I never thought I'd say I'd get tired of answering all the questions about <laughs> Gateway, but I am tired of answering the questions about Gateway. Everywhere we go, everywhere I'm at, I'm asked about the Dome. And, yes, we are on schedule to do it. Everything looks great and good. So I'm excited about that. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing that the Dome makes me think of is – you know, you don't realize how much you love something until it's gone. And not being able to do the dome, uh, it ain't, it's not just personal. Because I've, I've literally watched and witnessed fans uh, come up to me over the course of the last year expressing their absolute love for that event. And I am just uh, so grateful and proud and excited to be able to do it you know, this year, because my whole vision and goal was to create something special. And I, regardless of what anybody else thinks, I don't give a damn. I have, I have, I've created something special and I just want to work harder on it for those same people to give them more. And I literally love doing it. It's one of the few things that in our sport, I genuinely still enjoy to do today, and I can make this promise, period, it is going to be bigger and better than ever. Well, I have a question. That's my last gateway question, so hold that for a second, because you kind of, you were segueing into something that's my, I, I'm not even sure what this question is. Help me formulate this question as a friend, as a friend here. I was a little critical of Bristol. At one point, I think I used the word gimmicky. Um, to just kind of describe all the racing at Bristol. And I don't necessarily mean that as a knock. I mean that as something that I don't know how sustainable long-term dirt late models are at Bristol or modifieds, whatever, whether it's demand on motors and equipment and everything else. It's kind of a, a gimmicky twinge to it. And someone pushed back on me and said, well, Gateway's a gimmick and you love Gateway. I don't think it's apples to apples, though. H help me defend myself and you against that argument why gateway is different than bristol because i don't think they fall in the same category um no they don't um and you know i can leave it to anybody else to determine which one they prefer over the other but i know from my personal i can give you two perspectives one as a fan and one as a team okay operating you go to bristol if you have a lug nut fall off or a this or a tire go down and you hit a wall, you are replacing a $100,000 race car. Yeah. You go to the dome and you have the same thing happen. You are replacing a door panel. And that's a big, big difference in the sustainability of an event. Okay. 
when you talk about motors, there are guys that are running crate motors, running supers, or keeping up with open modified motors at the dome versus uh, a motor at, at Bristol. You, you ought as well sign yourself out of the game if you don't have the latest and greatest and the best of, of all. And f- from that perspective as a team, the sustainability of it, it's just not there. And I think, I think we saw that with running two events this year. Yeah. You, you saw the, the March event and then, of course, the April event. And there was certainly more, you know, uh, I guess you would call the car count for sure, but I'm just saying from a team perspective, there was more concern about motor, more concern about car because everybody had already been through the first one. And yeah. it's like, so from that perspective, I just don't think it could keep happening. I love that it has because I love innovative things and I respect the people that are doing Bristol because I know what it takes to do. Well, and you talked and about doing it at one. I know at one point you, you dipped your toe into that, right? To doing Bristol at one point you were, that was on your radar screen. I know. Absolutely. Um, it was and a couple of years ago it was, and then even up, you know, this year I had a phone call before the March race was ever announced. And, and I really just, uh, I I wasn't willing to do what they did, you know, what XR and those guys did. And, and um, they were, and kudos to them for doing it. Um, I do uh, absolutely still question the sustainability of it. And one of my concerning things is still, I'm one of those operators and promoters that I do. Cons- I am deeply concerned about the safety. I am so thankful that, there was not, um, at least from what I believe, to be any major, major injuries. Um, but our cars are not built to go at those speeds or at those loads. That's the biggest thing is the loads. Yeah. You know, when you get into a corner and they do what they're doing, it's just a very sketchy situation. And so from a, from a fan perspective, it's remarkable. But, um, you know, from a fan perspective – uh, because of the speeds and because, I mean, there's just the the racing aspect. It, it's, yeah, you're going to have moments where there is uh, some racing and some passing. But I think if, you know, you, you started this question with comparing it to the Dome, it's like uh, you're not going to see a Tyler Carpenter win at Bristol. Right. I'm just sorry. You're that not. Moment, yeah. So yeah. you're not, you're not going to see something that's like just totally, I wouldn't call it life-changing. I mean, winning the Dome was not life-changing for Tyler Carpenter, but it was probably uh, on a resume for his career, uh, it went straight to the top. And I don't think, I mean, Jonathan Davenport probably wouldn't say that winning Bristol was more important in his career than winning the World 100. Would you say so? I mean, you know, you know how I feel about the World 100. So, absolutely not. It should not be more important than well, nothing's more important than I'm, the World 100. <laughs> and so, and, yes. and and I just truly believe that. So, so when you talk about what's the difference, that's the difference. Yeah. Is uh, I do think the dome has just such a unique, sustainable future. There's always the hope for the little guy uh, from from a from an engine cost perspective as a team. 
yes, there is a lot of sheet metal carnage, but come on, guys. I'm going to tell you right now, I run a race team now. I'll take damn sheet metal damage all day <laughs> over blown up motors and blown up rear ends. I still say that that first Friday night of the inaugural Gateway Dirt Nationals, it, it really is one of the great moments of my career. We had a rough Thursday, right? It was 2.30 in the morning. I think everybody back at that hotel that night was sort of like, oh, boy, that was a rough start to this event. And you come back Friday with that incredible, you know, who all was it? Jason Fager and Bloomquist and Lanigan and those guys that were in that. It was Lanigan, right, in the battle Friday night. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That, yeah. that battle yeah. that was Friday night. Well, it will forever go down to me as an all-time moment that people will never forget in our sport. Uh, I, I believe that. And that's that's not even really a question. That's just me sort of reflecting on that night with you was, was really freaking special, wasn't it? Well, um, again, not to compare, but I just got goosebumps with you talking about it. And, and again, I, I say this a lot. Our sport is so much anymore about moments and that was such a big moment um and in not a lot of events or a lot of a lot of races that we experience all year year in and year out they not a lot of them do that and that was one that i know for a lot of people um was one that gives them goosebumps and one they won't forget and uh that was the that was the it's it's happening moment. Yeah. This is actually happening. And um, a lot of hard work went into that moment. And that's why I know it's more personal to me than probably anybody else. But there's people like even you and, and just people that were so deeply involved in, in part of that, that they also feel that same emotion and they get those goosebumps. And, and it's just, I mean, when you can hear, 15 to 20,000 people over engines. I don't know <laughs> if there's, I don't know if there's much more of a, a motion that you can give people uh, to enjoy what we are all doing here. I just, I just don't know that there is. One of my last few questions before true or false. One of my favorite things to ask drivers is tell me other drivers that you think are good. It's funny when I ask drivers this, they're never ready for it. And you get, you really get some honest stuff because they're, they're caught off guard with it. So I kind of hoping I'll catch you off guard, but I don't want to talk about drivers. I love to hear those. I want to hear you talk about promoters. Give me other promoters who are catching your eye. Uh, who out there do you think is good? Who is Cody summer looking at thinking eh, it's an up and coming promoter or an established promoter. That's really good. Take me through that. So you're you're asking me drivers or promoters? I'm asking you promoters. So what I what I was referencing was I always ask drivers to talk about other drivers, and I love those answers. I'm asking you as a promoter to tell me about other promoters. Who who else do you think is good out there right now? Um, well, I feel like promoters are um, collectively as a group always the most underappreciated people in our sport. And I know that from personal experience, um, but I also just know it from seeing and talking with others and, and seeing what they, they get out of what they do or the amount of work that they put forth. And, you know, the ones that probably deserve the most credit and never get it are the people that are actually still operating weekly programs. Um, and that's like a dying breed. Yes, uh, yeah. It's just, 
in in I I've never been able to understand how people promoters uh, can can wake up every week and want to continue to do this over and over and over again. And so they're they're all the ones that deserve uh, probably the utmost respect and appreciation. But you know, selfishly, I'm a promoter that goes big or go you know goes home, and so. I'm always also keeping my eye, eye out for, for people that are doing something way outside of the box or doing something that basically creating something out of nothing. And there's not a lot of people doing that. I mean, there's just not in, and, uh, you know, but you know, there are some, I mean, you got a, you got a guy like Cody Watson and West Virginia motor speedway. I think that you should, I think as an industry, we should tip our hat to a guy like that yeah. who is bringing something back to life. You know, it really reminds me of what I started at Mansfield. And obviously, uh, I hope the outcome is much different. But um, a guy like him is taking big chances, doing some things, you know, as a, as a team, a different hat. We're going to go run there and compete there um, in June for the for the throwback race. And it's like, He's doing some things that are just way different, way off the wall. And uh, anybody in that realm or in that space um, always has, has, has caught my eye when they're creating something out of nothing. But never forget those weekly promoters that, that you know, deserve the utmost credit. Um, and, I, and I'm sure there's a lot of promoters out there that um, – uh, are doing some amazing things and you know i hope i hope everybody thanks them because i know uh they don't get thanked enough a final quick one before true or false you have you know i know this through the grapevine and i don't even know that you know that i know this but you've been earmarked for some other jobs in dirt track racing uh industry jobs uh you know major sanctioning body jobs high industry position jobs does that stuff interest you at all you know let's I don't even want to name an organization because I don't want to put it in people's minds, but if somebody came to you and said, hey, come work at this organization uh, for us and, and shape dirt track racing, do you, do you, would you be interested in that? I I would be, and I have been. Um, the, the challenge, I think, that has always been the case for me is um, – I don't think people truly, and I mean, you started this whole interview with it. It is, um, there's like almost still this mystery of me and there's still this unknown, but yet I know who I am. It's very clear. It's very evident. And I, I could spend all day talking about it, but not everybody wants to hear that. And I think when you start looking at situations like that, where let's say, an organization wanted me to be involved. Um, I think they have their own unique challenge of uh, I'm a tough, I'm a tough play. You know, it's hard to understand me, but yet, you know, you'd like to have me, I, I guess. Right. And it's, it's just a very weird situation. And plus I'm, I've been known as this guy that marches to the beat of his own drum. And, you know, I'm the guy that put on a hundred thousand dollar sprint car race when they were putting on a, big sprint car race too, you know, and I'm, it's just, I feel like people think that I don't want to be involved in, in call it an organization, but 
I would argue all day long that I'm actually, I could prove to you that I'm the type of person that's uh, very loyal to what it is I'm doing too. I mean, there's no secret. If I'm on something, that is what I'm on. I am, I have a term in business, uh, drinking the Kool-Aid. Everybody needs to drink the Kool-Aid to be successful. And I am a drink the Kool-Aid type of guy. So if I was to take a leap and, and let's say run a series or, or start a series or, or you name it, or go work for an organization, I would be drinking that Kool-Aid. In fact, I would be chugging it and I would make sure everybody in that organization <laughs> chugged it. And that's something that I think um, I have a unique ability to do and I would do, but the situation would have to be right. And, and I would certainly need some wings and I don't know that there's an organization that exists today that is going to uh, give a guy like me the ability to have the wings. All right, here we go. We're wrapping it up with true and false. I have four true or false questions for you, uh, and I would like a true or false answer to all of these. Are you ready? True. So only answer true or false. <laughs> and for some reason, I already feel like you're going to go, well, how about somewhere in the middle? I'm looking for true or false on these. All right, so here we go. First question, true or false, Cody Summer, Derek Kessinger beat you in a game of one-on-one at about 3.30 in the morning <laughs> the night before the inaugural Dirt Million at Mansfield. Is that true or false? I am, I am not able to answer this as true or false because <laughs> what? he was wearing tennis shoes and I was wearing boots that I just painted a damn wall with. And those weren't just small boots. They were like heavy steel-toed. I mean, we're talking big-ass boots. And so, yes, he beat me, but barely. And if, if he wants to play a straight-up tennis shoe versus tennis shoe game, I'll whoop his ass. Derek, Derek is in the studio with me right now. I'm actually, Derek, take your headset off. Cody said that he, if, if he, I, I, he would love to play you in one-on-one again and tennis shoes versus tennis shoes this time. Swab, do you have any just quick thoughts you can, you can tell me, yes or no on that, Derek? Anywhere, basically, he just said anywhere. We got a hundred, hundred bucks $100 on it. Bill on it. Hundred, ready? Oh, he said I'd put a grand on it. Oh man, Woo. he's putting a grand on one on one. We might have to just bring a basketball hoop to the damn dome. To the man. dome, I agree. Let's bring a hoop to the dome. All right, this is a whole thousand dollars. I'm in on it. Thousand right. dollars if he's in on it. Thousand dollar game, one on one to what? What's the rules? Uh, Twenty one, Derek. Eleven, eleven to eleven. All ones, twos and ones, just ones or uh, just oh, ones. He doesn't have the stamina. He wants to play to eleven, <laughs> not twenty one. He's he's questioning your cardio. You only to play to eleven. All right, okay. We'll, we'll work out the details, but right now there's a thousand dollar one on one game happening at the dome on the line right now. Okay. I've almost. I don't even know. I can get to the rest of these true or false questions after that. Um, we'll work out the details of that. True or false question number two. Uh, you you actually have a track championship at Bureau County Speedway. Is that true or false? That is true, and I'm surprised you know that. But that is true. Where? Uh, what class was it? I guess it would have been the bomber or the street stock or both. I don't remember, yeah. but um, uh, you know. One thing that is interesting about that time is is I was really good in the street stocks. You know, it was uh, my dad. I tip my hat to him and my racing past is he he did that for me. So yes, it is true. It right. is true. 
next true or false, your goal when growing up was not to be in racing. Your goal was to be a full-time WWE wrestler. <laughs> and you, oh, my God. You, you even went as far as seeking out wrestling schools to make this happen. Is this, is this accusation true or false? See, now I know you talked to Jacob because <laughs> that's the only person that would have known that that is absolutely true. It is true. Big but I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you, you know what's funny about it, and I tell Jake about, and this isn't just, this is like a regular conversation in, in like our office and in our workings. Like, I, I, I always talk about how I admire the whole WWE thing and how they created something out of nothing and the promotional aspect. And, you know, you, you look at their history and what they've done, you know, and the superstars they've created and, I mean, Michael, you know this about me, but it's like that's the vision I've always had for our sport and and going at that way bigger level. So I think secretly that was where my passion was. But, no, I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say <laughs> I absolutely wanted to be a wrestler and my idol was Mankind oh, and okay. Nick Foley. And I wanted to be – I wanted to be Mankind. I <laughs> I – thought that I was going to be a wrestler and I was looking at schools and my parents were supportive of it and they thought it was weird. Um, and now I even think it's weird, but, um, I was dead serious at 12 years old, 11, 12 years old. I was going to be a professional wrestler. <laughs> okay. And I was going to ask you who your favorite was, but mankind. Now we know. All right. Mankind. I mean, dude, that dude, Everybody needs to go YouTube Hell in a Cell Undertaker Mankind oh, and tell me that you don't it's you don't appreciate that type of showmanship, then you are just an asshole. And the best era Dumb. ever in professional I, I, wrestling. The WCW WWF wars at the time, um the Monday Night Wars. It was, it was best, just best era ever. I think again as a promoter it was almost like a secret. I didn't even know at the time that I was going to be a promoter and that I was going to understand event management. Or, or all of what they do. But now I do, and it's like I think secretly it was what really attached me to it was the showmanship of it. And, uh, you know, man, it is really incredible. It really is. Final question of this interview, final true or false question, and I might be most excited about this question out of anything we've talked about. True or false, Cody Summer, you plan to race again and you also, with that, plan to compete in a World 100 again, or for the first time, I guess. Man, I don't know how you, I don't know where you get your information, but <laughs> yes, I, I actually, I actually would like to. Um, the most recent time that I jumped in a car was last year. At I-80, we were testing after the Silver Dollar Nationals. We had a bunch of problems. And a lot of people don't know the history of, like, uh, Scott. And, and this was before me and him had partnered and got together. But I had basically uh, wagered him to drive a rig back from uh, uh, Cleveland. And I, I had said, if I'm going to do this, I want five laps in the zero car. And uh, he said, sure enough. And so... Uh, we get back to Mansfield. We're supposed to do some testing. He's, you know, he's testing and, 
Um, the cops showed up at midnight cause Scott was running after hours and told us we had to shut it down. So I never got my five laps. Well, when we were out at I 80 last year, I said, I want my damn five laps now, especially. And, you know, so this is before relationship after relationship, but I got my damn five laps and that was the last time I was in a car and it just truly, did inspire me that you know what i i would like to do something big behind the wheel again you know and it i don't know i think people think that's crazy because they just don't know that i used to do that they just don't know and i don't think it's crazy at all but i want to run the world 100 that is my um that is my end all be all if i have one more race i run my entire life it'll be the world 100 all right. Well done on the true or false. That was a solid hour and 15 minutes with Cody Summer, gateway promoter, owner, Scott Bloomquist Racing. Uh, mis- you know what? I'm going to say mystery man, Cody, but I'm encouraging people. And this, you might yell at me for saying this. I'm encouraging people, if they see you in the Scott Bloomquist pit area, walk up and ask Cody Summer questions. I find him to be a very approachable very pleasant human being is that okay can i instruct people to just walk up to you and ask you questions because i think you're intimidating to people and i don't think you need to be and they can walk up and talk to you right absolutely i I actually think that's like one of the things me and scott have in common is we're intimidating people but yet i don't he doesn't understand it and i don't understand why i'm intimidating people I, i feel like i'm a very approachable guy i feel like i'm a likable guy and when you get to know me i don't know i don't i don't I don't have a lot of enemies. Um, sure, we all have some, but it's like, I don't know, come ask me something. I bet you'd be surprised, and um, I'll definitely uh, tell you what I'm thinking. That's for sure. Last chance, that Scott Bloomquist Las Vegas story. Like, one more detail? Like, one tiny more detail in anything? Again, it, it, it's his story to tell, and you never know. I'm sure one of these days you're going to have him on Rigsby Report, oh, and I'm, you can just ask him yourself. I will and, be in Mooresburg, Tennessee, um, sitting down with him for that Rigsby Report. I, That'll be I, a two-day extraordinaire. <laughs> bring, the, bring the production trucks. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I already did uh, – uh, wrong by even mentioning that that there is a story because again you're just not supposed to mention anything that happens in vegas it just stays there so now i just created mystery because that's what we do so you know what screw it cody i appreciate it bud thanks for the time man thank you it's good talking to you guys do you want the deal of the century? I have the deal of the century. That's 100 years, by the way. If you buy a car or truck from Bomb Chevy Buick in Clinton, Illinois, new or used, you get a lifetime subscription to Dirt on Dirt and to Flow Racing with it for free. They are, without question, the best people in the car or truck buying game I've ever met. And my next car, I need to buy another car, will be bought at Bomb Chevy Buick. Check them out bombchevybuick.com that's b-a-u-m chevybuick.com they are easily the best in the business and you get a lifetime subscription with it to flow and dod that's literally like a several thousand dollar value so check them out at bomb today thank you to cody summer for that and i have to say of all the podcasts that i've sketched out and worked on you know made my notes for none have come easier to me than that one did. Words just kind of flew from my brain to the paper. I think so many of my other pods have required such extensive 
historical research. And this one, not only did I know the subject, him, very well, but I, I liked talking about more modern things with him. It didn't have to all be about the career. Much of it was about his career, but it just felt fresher in a way. And I want to do that more. I'd like to have on more journalists, more people um, in the industry. You know, not not all Larry Moores and Charlie Schwartz and Jeff Purvis says, we'll, we'll continue to do that. But I just want to have more people on and just talk about dirt late model racing and all racing, honestly, in general. Shoot them questions about the state of the sport and other, thing, um, other things that I think people might be interested in. Like I said, I'll always have Larry and Jeff and, and Schwartz and those guys but look for that more in the coming months. You'll see some fun stuff, I think, that it's a departure from the earlier Rigsby reports, uh, but nonetheless still entertaining. Hey, a final a quick note as well. This past weekend was an exciting one at Flow Racing. Uh, we officially became the number one vertical at Flow Sports. We are one of the newest kids on the block at Flow, but we've already sort of vaulted to the top. I cannot tell you how proud of that that I am. In my, in my 14 years of doing this, you honestly have no idea how happy that makes me. And the crazy thing is, and I normally don't talk like this, um, we aren't even, we're not even really any good yet. <laughs> what I mean by that is uh, we're really so newborn at Flow in the racing department, learning how to do things, learning how to walk, and we are having this much, much success with so much left to do. It just tells me that the sky is the limit for where we can go in large part because of what you guys, the listeners, are doing. You're believing in us. You're subscribing to the website. You love the offering. You love the price point. Um, so you guys really are kind of the ones that are making this possible. So thank you for that. We'll be back in a few weeks. I'm uh, not sure my next guest yet. I got, I got a few ideas, but I'm not sure who it's going to be. Uh, you'll find out when it happens. But we'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks for listening to the Rigsby Report.